Hello, folks. Welcome to Grit and Glitter, a weekly podcast dedicated to the power of women's wrestling for the 199th time. My name is Harley Vasquez. I am M. Fear. And we're joined this week by our best friend in the universe, Brian Bell. That is a, a lofty title that I will wear happily. I'm so Yay. happy to be back on, on the show with you two. It's always fun when we get a chance to get together and talk about some very interesting things. It's so true. And this is a super interesting, interesting topic. This is a special episode. This is to cap off Pride Month 2023. Periodically on Grid and Glitter, we do our series within a series that we call Living Legends. This is where we do long form biographies and watch matches and talk about the entire careers and lives of important wrestlers of marginalized gender who are still active today. That's the main caveat with this thing. We've covered people like Mercedes Martinez. We've covered people like Veda Scott, like Mickey James. The idea being we want to tell you and sell you on why these people are so important, why they are legends and why you need to be sure to give them their flowers now while they're still going. So this week, to cap off Pride 2023, we're looking to the West Coast. We're looking at the lives and career of the Master Mold, the Mother Brain, the Dark Sheik. So, such a wonderful choice for this series. Yeah, you know what? I always start with like their childhood, starting off at the beginning of somebody's story. But because we have a guest here, for the first time on Living Legend, we asked Brian to come on and join us because, M, is there anybody more worldly in the world of LGBTQ wrestling than Brian Bell? I refuse to believe it. I mean, some of the wrestlers in the world amongst the lgbtq community probably are uh great uh you know uh historians uh, uh unto themselves and obviously they are authorities in their own manner but brian has a full scale overall overarching knowledge and um yeah so they are essential essential party here Y'all gonna make me tear up before we even get into anything today over here. <laughs> no, I, like, I, I, I know my place in in the greater wrestling space, and I value it very, very deeply, and and what I'm able to do with what I do. Um, and of course, the minute that that y'all reached out to me to talk about Dark Sheik, uh, and the career of Dark Sheik, uh, on the life of Dark Sheik, honestly, on this show, like I. I jumped the, at the chance. It helps that I have a, a decent working knowledge of Hood Slam uh, to go, to back myself up a little bit here. <laughs> but at the same time, like there's the Dark Sheik is such an amazing person, and I love any chance I get to talk about her. There's probably a sizable portion of the wrestling community, especially East Coast wrestling community, who only really became acquainted with Sheik over the last handful of years post-pandemic. So before we get into her entire life and career, why don't you 
give us like a quick like why is she a legend why does she deserve this moniker at this point in 2023 dark chic is a creator a creator for people that exist on the fringes right she embodies that in a lot of ways it's not just the fact that she you know founded hood slam and was able to build a a community in in oakland and the greater bay area the greater west coast really with hood slam at 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 its highest points pre-pandemic um that was a very much a unifying thing for people that a like wouldn't have really found themselves being interested in pro wrestling outside of you know what hood slam presents um but b this is especially for performers like just taking something that is so rote in its historical practices and its structures like pro wrestling and just basically telling people like, no, you can do literally anything with this and putting that into, into force in the way that she has with hood slam. Obviously hood slam is not just her, but like, you know, she, she is a spawning off point there. And a lot of people, you know, we'll point to her as that for, for Hood Slam. And, and that's the spirit that she has. Like, you can feel it through everything that, that Hood Slam does. Um, and it's, it's, they call it the accidental phenomenon for a reason. Like, I first found out about Hood Slam whenever I still lived on the East Coast. Like, it reached far and wide, far and wider than any, like, regional based promotion ever could. Uh, in in a way, and it's because of the uniqueness of it. It's because of the the freedom of it that it did so. So let's begin at the beginning. Sam Kondakavadi is born 1985 in Alpharetta, Georgia. It's a predominantly white town, and Sam is of Iranian American Persian descent. As a child, she has a dream about a magic rainbow, where when she walks under it, she comes out the other side as a girl. And she wakes up feeling sad. By the time she's six years old, she knows she's a girl, even if she doesn't have the language for it yet. When she's 10, Sam's mother passes away from cancer, leaving her, her father, and her older brother alone in a house of grief. So Sam escapes into comic books, cartoons, and the Ninja Turtles. Her favorite Ninja Turtle is Raphael because he's broody and sensitive, and she grows up wanting to be like him. Three years later, when she's 13, they move to Northern California, where she dons hypermasculinity as a means of protection and survival. She says, I was shaving my head. I was wearing shirts and jeans every day. Not a lot of color, that's for sure. But it was very masculine, hypermasculine, because it's what people were starting to like about me. My aggressive tendencies, my chest hair, my physical capabilities, they all geared themselves towards more of a masculine persona. In high school, she does theater, martial arts, and amateur wrestling, and she starts training at the age of 14 in Fremont, California. When she starts, she's wrestling under a mask as Persian Tiger, but they change her name to Tiger Kid because A, she's too small to be a heel, and B, Persian people can't be faces. She doesn't fight it. When she's 16, 9-11 happens. And as a result, Tiger Kid never wrestles a debut match. Instead, we enter a post 9-11 world with her trainers telling her, we're gonna use that. 
Now, she says she was destined to be given a chic gimmick as soon as her trainers found out she was fluent in Farsi. And there's a long history of chic characters. I don't know if either of you can... Iron Sheik, obviously very f famous to WF audiences. Before him, there was the original Sheik, who was prominent in the 70s and 80s. I know my dad uh, saw him many times here in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, those are always the two that jump out when you're talking specifically about, like, chic characters. Or, like, characters that have chic in the name, right? But I feel like, you know, the proliferation of the, the stereotypical chic character is definitely something that is extended to a number of places in wrestling. I mean, just look at, like, it's not necessarily a chic character per se, but you can look at somebody like Muhammad Hassan and, and Sean Davari. Um, as as two people that had that thrust upon them at, at a similar time, you know, um, and it's it's it all kind of bores out of this the, that greater Islamophobia, especially post nine eleven, the post the era that you know, Sheik turned out to to be entering the pro wrestling business, like where you know those cultural uh thing those cultural moments that were happening there like informed a lot of hate and in pro wrestling like what better way for in in at least like you know the mind back then of a promoter like what better way to get heat than just than having someone that can represent all of these um like nameless faceless uh populations and have that yeah. be something they can direct hate onto yeah most definitely i mean Wrestling works in high contrast most often, and um, what a lot of people think of as like a golden era of like 80s wrestling, of you know any era of wrestling in particular, is going to feature a lot of prominent storylines that are you know big beefy American type versus shady foreign type, whether that's a you know a Middle Eastern stereotype or a you know communist Russian Russian stereotype or a you know Asian stereotype. Um, so even if it's not chic in the name, there are like dozens upon dozens of examples in even the last like 30, 40 years of wrestling that you can point to that it's like that was that was played upon that was used. Exactly. I mean, you know, I talked about Davari before, but when he went to TNA, like his his character was Sheik Abdul Bashar, you know. Mm -hmm. So like you had another one there, like like in in the mid to mid to late two thousands as well. Is told Tiger Head is no more. You're going to be chic going forward. But rather than just accept a role as like a Muhammad Hassan type ISIS agent or something like that, she makes the role as palatable as she can to herself in her own mind. She tells herself it's not a it's not a terrorist. It's a freedom fighter. So she works royal colors like purple and gold into her gear. Well, in an interview, she says when it was first given to me. It was specifically like, you speak the language? Okay, then you're this. That's all it was. And that was frustrating because I felt like it was something that had been done to death and was old. We needed to move forward. But I tried my best. I looked at what freedom fighters and holy warriors in the Middle East looked like at the time. I tried to be authentic to modern interpretations. I tried to still be an artist about it. She pictures an Iranian kid in the crowd and plays the role for them, something they would understand, not be embarrassed by. She shoots down proposed names like Shiko Sama and Sim Sim Salbim. God. <laughs> Jesus <You're>, Christ. <laughs> you, you have to laugh because it's just 
you I don't know. I, there's no other response. Instead, she takes her own last name, her own shoot last name, Kondagavati, and reworks that. And she ends up debuting in 2001 at the age of 16 as Sheik Khan Abadi. So 16-year-old Sheik Khan Abadi enters wrestling as a heel in the Age of Freedom Prize. She's told to cut promos in Farsi to enrage the crowd. At one point, they ask her to use a woman in a burqa as a step stool to get into the ring, although she refuses. I feel like they, I feel like Awesome Kong and Raisha Saeed did that though speaking of tna i'm trying to think if i ever if that happened it, it might have i can't remember a time off the top of my head but it wouldn't have surprised me if that had been pitched in the end the russo era of tna let's put it that way oh yeah i don't know if any that would be off off bounds when it comes to the russo era so teenage chic is playing the heel she's getting heat but it's an intensity of heat that the white heels and the other wrestlers on the show aren't getting. She's being heckled, she's being followed to her car after shows, and being berated by racist fans. But she toughs it out, she graduates high school in 2003, and continues wrestling while also working in a cannabis club and as a pizza delivery driver. What is a cannabis club? So, let me tell you. <laughs> Yay! I mean... I have like I have like a vague inkling, but like please, Brian, educate me. Shout out Portland PDX. Uh, I actually went to the to the dispensary earlier today, and in, in honor of today's show, so I could get some edibles. Um, <laughs> no, so basically, it's, it's very similar to a, a, a dispensary. It's just you know back in around this time when she would have been working with uh, working there, it was more around like medical marijuana. Um, you still had to, you know, go to your doctor and get, and get a medical card. So it's very similar to like the dispensaries that we have today where you just – it's basically like any store. You just walk in, um, figure out, like, they have, like, you know, stuff on display there for you to, like, check out. And, like, around this time, it probably would have been mostly, like, bud or, or pre-rolls. You know, this is – you know, some of the, the more – fancy implementations of marijuana <laughs> nowadays uh, are uh you know were not necessarily as readily available back then so like you know you have your you have your bud you have your pre-rolls and they'll take little, you can take a little jar and like they'll open it up and you can like sniff like smell the bud and see if that is something that pleases you and that sort of thing so yeah it's just like a little shop where you pop in and you know just pick up some some weed and then uh head home all right cool there's literally one on every the corner of every block in Portland. I love it. It's so great. So before like legal dispensaries, these were these were okay. These were about like how did they operate if it wasn't technically legal? So like in, like it, it was medical marijuana, right? So you had to have okay. your your card from your doctor to go in, and then you know it was highly regulated. It still is highly regulated, even though it's not you know it's not federally legal and because of it not being federally legal so yeah like it still it still was perfectly legal to do that back then it was just only for on a medical basis where you could have access to it so chic Kanabadi wrestles on the indies mostly in california from 2003 to 2006 as far as i can tell october 2006 she is when she wins her first championship it's the cruiserweight championship for big time wrestling 
And she continues to spend 2006, 2009 in California wrestling for Big Time Wrestling, Devil Mountain Wrestling, North American Wrestling. She does some work in Florida for Vintage All-Star Wrestling and American Combat Wrestling. I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with any of these promotions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm somewhat familiar with Big Time and Devil Mountain just because they're both Northern California and... um, you know, I, I lived in Northern California for a little while when I first moved to the West Coast, and you know, when it felt like a, a somewhat of a wasteland for independent wrestling at that point for, for me. And like these companies, I kind of came in as these companies were either like had just had gone away in recent years or were kind of going away. So like Devil Mountain Wrestling in big time, really like there are a number of people, and, and not to jump ahead or anything, like there are a number of people involved with Hood Slam that you know come from those promotions as well most specifically anton Voorhees, uh she's regular tag team partner kind of got his start at devil mountain well some of the bigger name opponents today that she wrestled in this time period from 2006 2009-ish were people like el chupacabra brian cage tjp reno scum and that leads us into the first match on our watch list it's from october 2007 in big time wrestling it is Sheik Kanabadi taking on Wild Storm in Newark, California. Very quickly, so Sheik is an interesting case, unlike someone like a Giselle Shaw or Nyla Rose, in that she transitioned halfway through her career for intense purposes. So even though these were the early days of YouTube and streaming and things like that, there are significant matches out there from before Sheik publicly transitioned. I wanted to include one on this list for the same reason we were doing an episode on someone like Kane. I'd want to include an Isaac Yankum match. Just as, just as a historical landmark and to see in ring style, in mannerisms, what is there in like the early days that we still see today in this person as a performer. Now, Sheik has said on this sort of conversation point, I wish I could have wrestled Virgil Finn III before he passed as I am and not how I was pretending to be. Or Mansoor. We had some wonderful matches. I don't share them as much because I don't think it looks like me and I want to see me. I feel like I'm watching not someone else, but it's like seeing a version of yourself that hasn't blossomed yet. It's still me. It's just before it could be me. So, uh, yeah. um, Brian, I didn't know if this... Is this... I don't know if this... It was okay for me to include like a chic kind of body match or not. I I think it I think it is in some ways just because like you know we want to see the the breadth of she's career um, and you know to kind of I really was interested because I, I looked through a number of, of like some of her um, older matches from this era um, before like the playlist was set right um, and. It's just interesting to kind of watch a a younger version of Sheik knowing like having watched her now for like 10 plus years and to see like the parts of like the dark Sheik that we know that were in Sheik Kanabadi at this point in in her career. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It was really fascinating to kind of see. I mean, like. Transition is going to affect your physique. It's going to affect all number uh, and manner of things about your performance in the ring. Not that's not negative or, or positive ways. Just like there will be changes. It's interesting to see 
so early on how much of Sheik's style and speed and abilities as a flyer and someone who can move with such fluidity in the ring and such like just again speed such effective like graceful speed um, that is so present even in this very like very early match and that is something that hasn't changed with with her career that hasn't changed in the 20 plus years that she's been wrestling that hasn't changed with her transition that hasn't changed at all. Um, so while there are different things about her physique, there's obviously different things that have evolved in, in her, um, in her wrestling style, in her moveset, um, changes that have, have come either just through the evolution of her style naturally or through like physical changes to her body. Um, watching these early matches really show you like she was very well formed at this point in time in her career, even however many years this is, which isn't many. Yeah, and another aspect of this match, too, that that really spoke to me was, you know, talking about, you know, how she expressed this, like, hyper-masculinity that she felt she needed to embrace, right, because of the people that were around her. And you see, you see, like, the description that you read, Harley, you see to a T here in this match. I mean, the shaved head, the, you know, the, the, the look, the attitude like it's it all kind of screams exactly what what you were describing you know that she described feeling at that time period um and all of this happening you know now in in hindsight now as we're looking back on this like 15 16 year old match at this point like knowing like what she was going through internally at this point in, in her life and 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 being the the expression of masculinity that is so over the top it's just an it's it's an interesting look back into like that point in her life and kind of speaks to the pro wrestling culture of the time in a way this is a cruiserweight match as i mentioned she held the cruiserweight championship for big time wrestling around this time period so that's another sort of like interesting timestamps like this was 16 years ago you were still having like cruiserweight divisions and matches even on like smaller indie promotions. You don't really have that anymore. Like I don't think of like tuning into a GCW show and being like, oh, time for the cruiserweight match. You know, like everybody wrestles everybody of all different types. So that's a real interesting, yeah, time capsule of the period here too. And this is like, this feels like a cruiserweight, like an X division match. You know, it's very fast paced. She literally hits a Styles Clash at one point. Does a springboard drop kick? Um, it's interesting as well. Okay, well, one thing really tripped me up about this is the video that we watched on YouTube. I guess the commentary is from 2021. Yeah. <laughs> when they when they referred to her as the mother of Hurtslam, I was like, wait, checking my notes. Like, no, Hurtslam hasn't formed yet. What are they talking? And I'm like, oh, okay, it's like modern commentary over an old match. Even the commentators kind of point out near the end of the match, the crowd starts chanting for Sheik, even though she's clearly the heel, played heel all match. Like, and almost in response, she has to like shove the referee into the ropes and crotch Wildstorm on the top rope to try to be like, no, I'm the heel. Stop cheering for me. I know I'm great, but stop cheering for me. It is an interesting moment when you see the crowd turn like that. And because like, you know, knowing what Sheik is going to go on to do, like, you want the, you want to talk about like the first like few years of hood slam like that's the role that dark she had like you know like even though she is supposed to be a villain crowds can't help 
but turn and cheer for her. So she wrestles various California, Florida Indies, 2006 to 2009. But by the end of 2009, she's already grown disappointed, frustrated with the state of pro wrestling. She's been doing this 10 years. So even though she's only like 24, she's been doing this for 10 years. And the state of indie wrestling in 2009 is vastly different than the state in 2023 or even 2015. Promotions are poorly run. Opportunities are slim. She's not. Op- there's just not much out there for her. So she fills the ache with drugs, with alcohol. And then some friends of hers who live at the Victory Warehouse in Oakland, they reach out because they, they've been throwing metal shows at the Victory Warehouse. And they say, hey, if you ever want to run a wrestling show there, you ever want to wrestle there, like... You can do it. All you need is a ring. Yes, history is made. Uh, I believe. <laughs> I believe the person who actually like, who like invited her to, like, run a show at Victory, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the members of the of the Hood Slam band. Um, because I think, I believe, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I get this right. I believe that a member of the Hood Slam band actually owned the lease on the Victory Warehouse. Oh wow. And so that's how like that that in kind of happened in that way. Well, that would make sense. And the name Hood Slam, you said Brian, basically just stemmed from the fact that people said that oh the the Victory Warehouse it's in the hood. Yeah, like it was literally like just that. Uh, it was like you know they like <laughs> it was the Victory Warehouse is in a rough neighborhood in Oakland. Um, and it was just as simple as that. Oh, Hood Slam. Easy. Another fun aspect of the name that um, came up in my like one of my interviews with Dark Sheik also about the name Hood Slam was that um, it was a conscious decision to like not put wrestling in the name to kind of give it the impression of not being an, an independent wrestling show on at least on like the marquee because one – you know, in a lot of people's minds, Hood Slam is wrestling, but it's not wrestling. And two, you know, if you tell somebody, hey, I, you want to go to Hood Slam tonight, as opposed to saying, hey, you want to go to pro wrestling tonight, it's a, it was a much easier way to kind of pull in new fans that would have had no interest in going to a pro wrestling show, but would have been interested in, in something akin to what Hood Slam was, because it was – you know, it was a combination concert, wrestling show, counterculture party, excuse to get fucked up. You know, all of these kind of thrown into this like <laughs> this like dingy um, quote unquote warehouse <laughs> just off in the in the corner of Oakland in, in the way that it was. So it was a conscious effort to be able to like pull people in to see a pro wrestling show and then make them pro wrestling fans at the same time. You want, you want to go to a wrestling show? Fuck no. You want to see a bunch of X-Men fans get drunk and beat each other up? All right. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hood Slam is one of those promotions that like, you know, you can put on, you can put on shows in the background of like a hangout. You can put it on like, you can put on those streams. You can put on the YouTube, like shows off of YouTube while people are just like hanging out at a party. And like, no one would, 
Like people would stop and watch it, but no one's going to really recognize it immediately as pro wrestling. Like they will, they will understand that essentially if they're watching long enough, they'll know that it's wrestling, but it's like, there's so much other stuff going on as pure spectacle or as pure, like as just pure entertainment and show. It, it's fun to just kind of dive in like completely uninformed. Yeah. Like it's just so vastly, especially for the time 2010. So, so vastly different from anything else that pro wrestling was presenting in, in, in that area, in the country, honestly. And, and that's what set it apart and what was able to help it grow into what we know it as today. One more thing um, on the kind of the origins of Hood Slam, and, and you mentioned it, Harley, um, there is that uh, the state of Florida and, and Sheik's experiences in Florida kind of – are part of why hood slam happened in the first place. Um, because, you know, when she moved to Florida to, to wrestle, to like, quote unquote, m- try to make it right. Um, the experiences that she had in Florida were so negative whenever she moved back to the Bay that that was at that point where, you know, she was thinking about just quitting wrestling. And then that because of those, ex- partially because of those experiences in Florida, and partially because, um, you know, this having this idea of like just doing wrestling on their own terms, so to speak, is really the combination that kind of sparked Hood Slam into existence. Our last episode of Living Legend, we covered the career of Emi Sakura. Same thing, like lowest point, ready to quit, retire, give up, forget this whole thing, and then. By chance, something happens, a, a victory warehouse, an old dentist office, and next thing you know, they're running their own promotion and just, like, setting the world on fire. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how in so many of these stories that we cover um, in these living legend reports, like, we're talking about people who had, in order to save their career, they really had to take over the reins. They had to, like, they had to make an active change. They didn't just have to, like, you know, make a big move or, like, get a big um, contract from a big company. They they had to literally like take the reins and take the power onto themselves and build something for themselves in order to succeed. And in both Emmy's case and Dark Sheep case, you can see that that worked out not just for themselves, too, but like making a legacy that other people could build their legacies on top of as well. So by by crafting their own empire, they were able to give safe harbor and launching pads for so many other people. So early 2010, Sheik founds Hood Slam in Oakland, California. So many indie promotions seem to be aspiring to just be a small version of WWE. Hood Slam will not be that. It'll be a party. It'll be a way to amuse her and her friends. In an interview, she said, there was only one major company on TV, and a lot of the independents had suffered. There's still some people doing great, but the majority of people weren't wrestling in front of big crowds, and some of us not even in front of cameras. My big point really was for people to have fun. It so happens that the people I knew and myself were minorities, were queer, were just from a diverse crew. It wasn't like there was any real intention other than we want wrestling to be enjoyable again. So she borrows a wrestling ring from a friend. She messages everybody she knows from the West Coast scene and says, hey, I want to do a show where you can party and curse and be sexual. There's not going to be any kids. We're going to do what we want. And that show is April 11th, 2010, Victory Hood Slam. It's the first Hood Slam show. It's live from the Victory Warehouse. 25 wrestlers say, I'll be there, definitely. 13 show up. (laughs) 
the Victory Warehouse is it's it's got four walls and a roof technically. <laughs> Beyond that, it's got barely working plumbing. It's freezing cold. The power goes out randomly, and yet for the first show, they draw like 70 to 80 people. They have live music from the band Einstein. They've got rancid guitarist Lars Fredrickson on commentary with Kevin Gill. First show. Oh my goodness. Guy from Rancid on commentary. Somewhere CM Punk was so jealous. <laughs> from the start, Hood Slam shows are 21 plus. There are drugs and alcohol flowing in the crowd. I still, I don't know how that's legal. I mean. If there ain't nobody there to catch you. <laughs> I guess. That's how. <laughs> Harley, Harley, snitches get stitches. All right. You did, you did not hear you did not hear about the drugs and alcohol from this podcast. Hood Slam is a very sober event. <laughs> yeah. As, as, I, as I talked about buying edibles prior to the show, specifically for this show. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not only is it like not not welcome like it's completely welcome but it's like it's built into the culture of hood slam i mean like <laughs> the, the active drug references and like overt drug references alone in like the very makeup of the promotion are are like by design they're not they're not <laughs> implicit they're completely explicit exactly i mean one of the most popular characters in hood slam history <laughs> is drugs bunny who's literally just oh, bugs bunny but does a lot of cocaine. <laughs> rest in power, Drugs Bunny. Yes, rest in power, Drugs Bunny. I cannot wait for your eventual resurrection. <laughs> so early Hood Slam shows are free, as Brian mentioned. They don't even put the word wrestling on their posters for like the first couple of years. It's not That's not the selling point. We're not looking for wrestling fans. We're just looking for interesting people looking to have a party. There are no guardrails at Hood Slam shows. There's no line between fan and performer. She says, I love that it's like a rock concert, and it's by design. We don't have chairs or barriers. I've seen people pass a blunt or beer to musicians on stage as they perform and wondered why fans don't do that to wrestlers. Don't they like us as much as them? I think they do, and felt that if they could, they would. So you have that now. On this very first Hood Slam show, somebody comes up to the ring to perform the national anthem before they can. She hits the ring, takes them out. She cuts a promo saying the promoter of this show is an idiot. What is planned is an insult to professional wrestling. Only Americans would infuse so much drugs and alcohol into wrestling. Get it? She's the promoter. <laughs> Juice Lee makes his entrance <laughs> and Juice Lee defeats Sheik Kanabadi in the very first Hood Slam match ever. That for show is only 45 minutes long because, like I said, only 13 people showed up to wrestle on it. But it's it's a success. You know, it, it works. And she will say years later that like it was effortless from the beginning. No struggles in the early days of Hood Slam. It was like, no, nah, this is easy. I got a whole community of talented wrestlers and musicians who are willing to help. Sometimes there are only 20 people in the crowd. That's fine. The people who are there like are frantic about it. They're absorbed. They're into it. And slowly, word of most spreads. I was going to every fucking event around here. Burlesque, poetry readings, shows. We'd include a lot of the Oakland local performers in all of our shows. The fire dancers, the hula hoopers, the burlesque crowd, you name it. We connected all these pockets of the community. And while doing that, we still would never advertise it as wrestling. We still don't. 
Hoodslam has two main sort of like credos or uh, mottos, take lines. The first is, this is real. Brian, explain that. <laughs> so I'm going to see if I, I could get this correct, but this is real kind of refers to um, one, the, the aspect of kayfabe in pro wrestling um, and the, the clear disrespect that is being shown to that by what Hood, Hood Slam is doing, but yet also still a respect in terms of storytelling because of the deep lore that is such uh, closely adhered to a lot of the times um, in, in the company is just very odd out their stories that are being told in it. Um, and and honestly, the, the second aspect of it ties into the very odd <laughs> like stories and, and characters that are uh, depicted in Hood Slam's ring. Um, it, like, is, I mean, in a company that has traversed everything from zombies to uh, mad scientists to uh, a nuke proposing to a woman to interdimensional travel to um, the current uh, whatever doomsday scenario the company is in at the moment, like all of this stuff is treated real um, by the fans because they buy into it. They are they are into this and they want to be part of this and engage with it. The second credo is fuck the fans. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I can tell, this basically is it, it's just a spirited way of saying like even if there is nobody in the crowd, the show would go on. Exactly, exactly. And it's a beautiful thing to see in a, a crowd of 300 people chanting, fuck the fans, <laughs> like unabashedly. <laughs> that said, Sheik obviously does like acknowledge today that there is a symbiotic relationship now. The fans are, at this day and age, as important to the performance as the people in the ring, the people on stage. So, the, the chic in Hood Slam lore, I will do my best, dear listeners, but it's a lot and it's confusing. It's like trying to trace Wolverine's timeline. June 13th, 2010, Hood Slam 2, Secret of the Booze. On the show, Sheik is bitten by the zombie Vinnie Butabi and dies. Now, Butabi was killed on the first show when Juice Lee ripped his heart out of his chest and reanimated at the start of show number two by Reverend Hellfire. So, show number two, Butabi is reanimated, turned into zombie. Zombie Butabi bites Sheik, Sheik dies, and Reverend Hellfire carries Sheik Kanabadi's lifeless body out of the warehouse. Two months later, August 2010, Hood Slam, Super Hood Slam 2 Turbo Championship Edition. Zombie Sheik is here now. She died, she came back to life, she's a zombie now. She teams up with Zombie Vinny Butabi. They took on, take on Rasta Mysterio in a handicap match. During the match, Sheik is powerbombed through a table on the floor and carried out of the arena by Reverend Hellfire again. Put a pin in that. 2011, Hood Slam begins charging admissions to the shows, which actually increases attendance. It's interesting, but this is a known fact that I found when I ran concerts back in my hometown as well, is if there's a price point, people assume that they're like getting their money's worth. Where something is free, people assume like, oh, I can't be that good. 
It's, it's very weird, but it, it works. It's interesting. So 2011 hosts slam against charge admission to the shows. Attendance goes up. Also in 2011, Sheik meets and befriends the trans wrestler Mariah Moreno. Now, Mariah, along with Broken Roxy out of Virginia and PJ Gonzalez out of Puerto Rico, is one of the first out trans women in wrestling. And Moreno's been wrestling for two years at this point in time out of the LA area. So it's 2011. Sheik has said today that she's known since the age of six that she was a, a girl, she was a woman, even if she didn't have the language for it. In 2011, it's still an internal struggle that she's processing, working through, and she still presents as male everywhere she wrestles. Things chug along at the Victory Warehouse for Hood Slam, but eventually they get so popular, they get so notorious that the landlord steps in and he says that they're attracting too much attention from the authorities. Again, kind of by luck and chance, Hood Slam are invited to do a 20-minute segment as part of a four-hour performing arts show that's happening in June at the Oakland Metro Opera House. During that 20-minute segment, as this four-hour arts marathon, the owner of the Oakland Metro Opera House sees the Hood Slam segment, loves it, and invites Hood Slam to run a monthly series on the first Friday of every month at the Opera House. Moving to the Oakland Metro means that they can have bigger crowds, up to a thousand people. It also means that they now have professional lighting and sound, and more importantly, shockingly, the staff of the Oakland Metro are 100% hands-off. They have no qualms about what Hood Slam does in the ring. You want to use fire in the ring? Go for it. You want to run a fake abortion angle? Okay. You want to book an iron lung match where two wrestlers have to finish a blunt before their opponent gets off the mat? <laughs> okay. That match is the stuff of legend, by the way. It's just... To be... To, to find like-minded people who want to be involved in something like Hood Slam, like wrestlers, performers, musicians, that's one thing. I can see it happening. But to find a venue that is just like 100% like do your thing we love all of this we don't we are not going to interfere that's so rare no it really is it, and hood slam definitely lucked into setting up with a venue like the oakland Metro- metropolitan opera house which again i will put opera house in quotations <laughs> in terms of what that what that building actually is it is beloved um when it was around, but um, like to have that level of commitment from a venue to give you like a weekend date, a regular weekend date to run, to be completely hands off with, with anything about it, um, to let them do whatever they want with, with what they want to present on the show. Like that is unheard of outside of like someone that owns the building they run in. Right. Like that, it's it's so interesting that if not for like just the chance of this happening, if they had gone to any other venue to run a hood slam, we might not have had the the over a decade lineage that we have now with this company. At the end of 2011, Zombie Sheik body dies again and is reborn again. <laughs> This time as an evil version of herself. This new evil version is inspired by Evil Ryu from Street Fighter. 
But mm, evil chic, yeah, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's, it's not quite that. Instead, she borrows her new name from the infamous Jean Grey Phoenix storyline in X-Men. And January 6, 2012, at Hood Slam, Ultimate Hood Slam versus Capcom 3 FT Fate of Two Worlds, we get the debut of the Dark Sheik. So in Hood Slam, going forward, she wrestles as the Dark Sheik, but outside of Hood Slam, she's still pretty much Sheik on a body everywhere else. That said, 2012 is the year that wrestling becomes her full-time job, and it's the year that she truly internally begins to wonder about her gender identity and truly start to think seriously about things. July 2012, the local newspaper East Bay Express runs their annual sports and leisure readers poll. In the category of best athlete, it's a tie. It's a tie between the dark sheik and yoga instructor Tim Thompson. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> Who is the best How? athlete in the East oh Bay in the summer of 2012? It's either it's either Hood Slam wrestler Dark Sheik or yoga instructor Tim Thompson. We can't decide. Look, if you could not split the dichotomy of the Bay Area so cleanly, then having Dark Sheik and Tim Thompson as the co-winners of best athlete in the East Bay. <laughs> Well, in addition to uh, the Best Athlete Award, the East Bay Express that year also gave out awards like Best Bike Ride to Bay Trail and Best Basketball Courts to Moss Ward Park. So Dark Sheik in some good company here. That October, October 2012, Dark Sheik defends her East Bay Express Best Athlete Award in Hood Slam in a match against the Karate Kid. Um, she defends this award that she won. Uh, Tim Thompson apparently chose not to defend his half of the award. He, ch he chose to sit this one out. <laughs> and thus began the best athlete in the Bay uh, championship in the company. Yeah, going forward, the best athlete award will be a new championship that will be defended in Hood Slam. <laughs> By the end of 2012, Hood Slam are averaging about 300 to 400 people per show, which is a sizable, sizable audience for these shows. June 2013, after many successful defenses, Dark Sheik loses the Best Athlete in the East Bay Championship to Virgil Flynn. As a result, the award, which was an actual like, plaque with Sheik's name on it, is retired and is replaced by a golden fanny pack. This will be the new championship belt. And this golden fanny pack remains a Hood Slam Championship today. Currently, it's held by Alicatch. Mm-hmm. Now, following her loss of the East Bay Award, Dark Sheik makes a deal with Doc Atrocity to time travel to the future and learn the secrets of professional wrestling so that she can then return to the present and better both of their standings in Hood Slam. Put a pin in that. <laughs> July 2013, Dark Sheik wrestles for Z CZW Combat Zone Wrestling it's Sheik's first appearance as Dark Sheik outside of Hood Slam, and also, I believe, the first time she appears as Dark Sheik, not THE Dark Sheik. From this point on, she's mostly wrestling as Dark Sheik. 
everywhere she goes. Sheikana body appears here and there occasionally still, but for the most part, it's Dark Sheik is the name being used in summer 2013. Also in summer 2013, she makes her debut in Finland, wrestling for Fight Club Finland. That is effing cool. I, we it not, is. We do not cover Finnish wrestling enough on this podcast. And that, that trip is also kind of interesting because, um, if I'm not mistaken, this is also the first time that she interacts with another um, trans trailblazer in pro wrestling, Jessica Love, who, you know, has wrestled exclusive, pretty much exclusively in Finland over the last um, 10 or so years. Yeah, as far as I can tell, that she does a three-night stint for FCF out of Finland in August 2013. As far as I can tell, that's her first time wrestling outside of America anywhere, which is kind of wild, too. By the end of 2013, Hood Slam have pretty much doubled their audience from the year prior. By the end of 2013, they're averaging 700 people coming up to each Hood Slam show. 2014, the unofficial Hood Slam school, the Stoner U Dojo, opens. It's run by the Stoner brothers, Rick Scott Stoner and Scott Rick Stoner, as well as Anton Voorhees. And Stoner U is where future WWE superstars like Shotzi Blackheart and Mansoor will get their start. August 2014, Hood Slam Battle Royal of Supremacy sees Funny Bone, who is a legally ordained minister, oversee a same-sex marriage in a Hood Slam ring. It's the very first legitimate same-sex marriage in a wrestling ring. Anywhere. It's beautiful. It's what a what a milestone. <laughs> we, I wish we should have tracked we should have tracked down the couple and Got them, interviewed them for this episode. If only. I will say Ooh. this, though. I did, I did not know that Funny Bone was ordained, or else I might have made a call from my wedding last year. I that would have been did. a very different experience. I, I did know Funny Bone was ordained, and I don't know why. I think it came up in an episode that we did like a long while back that featured Funny Bone, and that was a tidbit that someone had thrown in that they like, knew about, about the wrestler. Um but yeah, for a reason I know that I knew that. Oh no, Brian, missed opportunity. Very much so. <laughs> August 2014, Hood Slam runs San Francisco, which is their very first time running a Hood Slam show outside of Oakland. And two months later, October 2014, for Hood Slam, Fuck the Fans 5, Broetic Justice, <laughs> Hood Slam hits capacity at the Oakland Metro for the first time. 1,000 people in attendance with others turned away at the door. Wow. To celebrate, the following month, they finally do the Opera House Justice with Hood Slam the Opera, featuring, quote, respected opera singers, an orchestra with a real conductor, and even a battle royal. The Hood Slam Opera is their take on Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagani, which was a political satire from 1930, written by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. It's a real opera that Hosan performs while people are wrestling. <laughs> and, and are we able to see this? Is, is this is this online? There's like a three minute like highlight reel on YouTube, but you it doesn't capture like the music properly. Yeah, there there might be something if you want to dive into the chaos that is uh, Hood Slam's Twitch archive, um, <laughs> but but that would be the only place I would think you would be able to find a 
any kind of full video of that right now. It's still like it's it's a double-edged sword of having the kind of streaming presence that they've had that makes it so accessible in some ways, but also the archiving of it, uh, it leaves something to be desired because there's just like there's not a strong archive, stream, a streamable archive for, for what they've produced aside from like stuff that's on YouTube. If you really want to go back and like it's the Twitch stuff that you have to really wait in and um, there's like not a whole lot of like valuable search technique to get into into what you need. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, a, it's something I struggle with as an information professional when it comes to promotions like these that have such a deep, rich body of work that are, is hard to it's hard to obtain. Like it's hard, it's just simply it's not as accessible as I would like it to be. Heading into 2015, Sheik is pretty much exclusively wrestling for Hood Slam. No more of these other indie companies. Like, why bother? Hood Slam sitting capacity each month. We're good to go. <laughs> February 2015 is the very first first Hood Slam Femmed Out event. Femmed Out is a series that Hood Slam does, drag-inspired, with wrestlers of all genders dressing as women that inspired them. Sheik had been wrestling as female characters for a while on various Hood Slam shows, and other people in the locker room began to express interest as well. So Sheik wrestles on this show as Link, dressed as Zelda, dressed as Dark Sheik. (laughs) (laughs) And in research, quote-unquote research, sure, for the show, Sheik goes out on the town in Oakland in drag for the first time. A few months later, she's performing at a burlesque show and she's running a Hood Slam merch table at the show. Throughout the night, there's a man in the crowd who's been aggressive with other wrestlers on the show and kind of given her the stink eye. She goes aside to avoid his stares and have a smoke, but as she walks out the door, he and his friends surround her and pull her wig off her head. As she moves to punch him, security grabs her in a chokehold and drags her outside. And in that moment, any progress that she had been making towards coming to terms with her gender or being comfortable presenting as female are pretty much immediately set back because now the threat of violence, again, just hangs over any sort of conversation. It's so sad to hear about experiences like that. March 2015, Hood Slam presents Get Your Ass to March. This show features live music from the Oakland thrash rock band Arnacore, and uh, they're there presenting their new 7-inch single, which features a cover of the Dead Kennedy sa- song California Uber Ayas. And for this, they're joined on stage by actual Dead Kennedy, Jello Biafra. Jello Biafra performed at a Hood Slam show. Feels right. <laughs> Very much so. I mean, this is the culture that Utslam emanates, right? This is the yeah. culture that Utslam is a part of. It only makes sense that you would have Lars Fredrickson <laughs> and now like a dead Kennedy getting getting involved in this sort of thing. It just it just feels like the symbiosis of of the punk DIY scene out there. Yeah, for real, for real. October 2015, DC Comics publishes Superman Volume Three. Issue 45, entitled Street Justice, in the comic, Superman takes a trip to Oakland, California, 
where he gets mixed up with an underground wrestling league called Myth Brawl. If this sounds very shocking for Superman comic, uh, you can credit writer Gene Lung Yang because he's from Oakland and the comic was inspired by a little, I won't say wrestling, a little group that he loved called Hood Slam. Gene oh, was wow. a Hood Slam fan and if you read the Superman comic, it's like blatant. The building that Superman walks into, it's clearly the Oakland Metro Opera House. And in the comic, there's even a woman who bears a strong resemblance to the Dark Sheik. Yep. I did not know that about Gene Mo and Yang. That is really cool. <laughs> Dark Sheik is DC Comics canon. <laughs> <laughs> January 16, Hood Slam runs Reno, Nevada which is the first Hood Slam show outside of California. And finally, we have reached the next match on our watch list. February 5th, 2016, Hood Slam, Out, Total Devastation. As I said, the Out series is where various members of the roster dress up as women that inspired them, or female characters that inspired them, and wrestle. This match, it is, speaking of DC Comics, it's the Joker and Harley Quinn, teaming up to take on Bat Manuela and Serial Girl. For those not familiar with Hood Slam, Serial Girl is Serial Man in drag. Bat Manuela is Bat Manuel in drag. Harley Quinn is the Dark Sheik. And the Joker is a little lady named Shotzi Blackheart. I'm very curious to get to get y'all's thoughts on, on this match before I delve into anything that I had <laughs> Here's my first thing. This match, Sheik's in full, like, Margot Robbie, Harley Quinn gear, mm-hmm. right? This match is six months before Suicide Squad comes out. Margot Robbie has yet mm. to, hasn't debuted in a movie as this version of Harley Quinn yet. As far as I can tell, the trailer for Suicide Squad came out, like, a couple of weeks before this. And so I think, I think Sheik just, like, saw the trailer, quickly whipped up a costume and was cosplaying as Harley Quinn like two weeks later. Because I don't think this is what Harley looks like in the comics. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all what Harley looks like in the comics. Yeah, that, that that's that's a stand right there. Doing that quick turnaround. She might have been one of the first people to cosplay as this version of Harley Quinn. Anywhere. It would not surprise me, knowing knowing her, her dedication and all of the work that she puts into her looks in that way um yeah this is i feel like this match is very emblematic of the spirit of hood slam in a lot of ways (laughs) not that all matches in hood slam are emblematic of that spirit but you know it's just so interesting to see the various intricacies that are being worked into this match because first off like you have the choker and harley quinn against batman whaler and Serial Girl, which, you know, Serial Man is also uh, kind of portrayed as, like, the superhero figure. So you have the two DC villains against one DC one DC hero and another hero whose mask um, is of nightmares uh, in some ways. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, you have them playing out sort of a, the dichotomy – not the dichotomy, but, like, the um, – the relationships that we see in DC as well, like throughout this match, you know, Shotzi and, and Sheik are playing 
their parts to a T, like displaying the abusive relationship that exists between Joker and Harley Quinn as they are beating up this fe- like female facsimile of Batman in Batmanuela. Um, and you see like these the interactions like they're both uh, at times over the top, at times very subtle, but you see like where like that fandom is for for Sheik and, and the other people in this match because they hit the the character points to a T in, in this match while still delivering like really awesome action. And of course, it's always very interesting to see Shotzi, the Hood Slam era of Shotzi. You know, mm-hmm. back before Shotzi Blackheart was like the only name that that we knew her by and then getting shortened to just Shotzi by WWE or whatever. Um, like back in the era of like Pizza Cat, <laughs> which is another character that that um, that Shotzi portrayed during her time at Hood Slam. <laughs> this match really is about Sheik and Shotzi because, um, I mean, maybe it's due to their costuming or size or I don't really know what it is. But in this match, I kept kind of losing track of anyone who wasn't them. Um, they're really hard not to watch, even when that Manuela and Serial Girl are, are doing interesting stuff or, or dominating the match. Like, my interest is only on Sheik and Shotzi in this. And it's, I think it's because their performances are just, like, so good. And it's for everything you said, Brian. It's not just because they're, like, they're great wrestlers, but, like, they are playing the character beats, like, full out throughout the, the match. They're telling the story. There's not as much interest when it's coming to their opponents, but when it comes to them, they understand what they're playing. They're playing it out in front of the crowd. There's multiple things that they do that, like, play on the dynamics of the Joker and Harley Quinn, including um, Harley disappearing out of the, the ring for a while, seemingly abandoning her partner. And they're coming back with pies. So many pies. One pie goes straight into the crowd. That's uh, fuck the fans. Then the other pie takes out Rosev on commentary, and the Joker rolls up Batman Wayla for the pin. And the Joker got away. To quote from Jingle Bells. Like she always does. Yes, this is an example of a A type of Hood Slam match for sure. 2016, Dark Sheik starts teaming with Ian Enhancement and Anton Voorhees as the caution. This will be probably like longest running and like most significant stable in her career. September 2016, Hoslam performs at the Folsom Street Fair. This is an annual outdoor leather and BDSM festival that draws like 250,000 people to Oakland. And Hoslam will pretty much become a recurring engagement there every year going forward. Yeah, the the Folsom Street shows, you know, seem like a very like popular point of engaging with the larger Bay Area for a hood slam, at least from like an outside perspective, right? Because like you would think that, you know, more than two hundred thousand like leather daddies um and uh you know not enthusiasts descending on the, the Bay Area for for a weekend um fits right into <laughs> what what Hood Slam wants to do with his presentation of pro wrestling. So like it was just a, a perfect match whenever that whenever that happened for them. May 2017, Hood Slam grows from being a monthly event to a weekly event, sometimes more than once a week. 
And okay, so that pin that put in earlier, pull it out. October 2017, Hood Slam, Blood Slam. It's 2017 now. If we recall, way back in 2013, Doc Atrocity attempted to send Dark Sheik into the future to learn the secrets of wrestling. We find out four years later that instead of arriving in the future, Sheik accidentally arrived in a parallel universe. In this parallel universe, Juice Lee has become essentially omnipotent. He's defeated all challengers, including Death herself, and renamed himself or named himself the Pope. In this alternate universe, Dark Sheik battles Super Pope Juice Lee the Redeemer and finally defeats him for the first time. After the match, she smashes the display case that he was keeping Death's heart in, destroying the universe. As a result, Sheik doesn't appear on any of the fall 2017, winter, or spring 2018 shows. Instead, she's mostly wrestling for Stone U shows instead. June 2018, Sheik returns from that universe to our universe. Now, we were unaware that she's been gone for five years, and while she was gone, the Sheik that we were seeing in Hood Slam was actually an evil robot version of Sheik. <laughs> Built by Doc Atrocity. Built by Doc Atrocity. Um, I guess he purposely sent her into an alternate dimension to get rid of her? Sounds like Doc Atrocity. And said he was sending her to the future, but instead he was just like getting getting rid of her to replace her. While she was trapped in this other alternate universe where Juice Lee became the Pope and then she uh, beat Juice Lee and Death's Heart, uh, destroyed everybody else in the universe. While she was trapped there, it was linked to the future Anton Voorhees who came to that universe, rescued her, brought her back to our universe. But in doing so, a triangular growth appeared on his face and just won't go away. (laughs) June 2018, Hoodslam runs Seattle for the first time. The next day they run a show in Portland for the first time. Also, that December, December of 2018, Dark Sheik begins taking hormone replacement therapy. And a month later is what I have found to be the final documented match for Sheik Khan Abadi. Abadi is no more. It is no me, the Dark Sheik, going forward. Where was that at, if you don't mind me asking? I'm curious now. Oof. Off the top of my head, I would have to say that it was at some tiny little nowhere show in Pacheco, California for Ace Battleground. Oh, okay, Pacheco, yeah. I know the, I know the town. I don't know Ace Battleground at all. Okay, it was a match against Anthony Rivera, also known as Anthony Butabi. January 2019. Hood Slam starts a new series within their series. They call it Hood Slam Glam, standing for Guilty, Lethal, Action, Mayhem. It's basically like an all-women series. Uh, and this first glam show features women like Holodead, Trisha Dora, and Viva Van. March 8th, 2019 is Hood Slam Glam Deadly Alliance. It's International Women's Day. Dark Sheik takes on Lady K, formerly known as Katie Lee Birchall. In WWE. And after the match, in honor of International Women's Day, she takes a microphone and just lets the audience know that she has been on HRT for 12 weeks and she is a trans woman. It's such a beautiful moment. And I'm so glad that we have like that that moment recorded in time for people to go back and, and look at that because it 
it's one of those like real moments that you don't get a whole lot in pro wrestling that really really speaks right into your heart in a way just to see to see Sheik be able to finally fully embrace herself publicly yeah and in in front of people who like they're fans yeah but they are hood slam fans they some of the people in that crowd are likely people who've been following the promotion and actively going to the promotion for years and years and years so it's something so profound to see a performer get to come out to essentially their family like to their like extended family and friends and their their entire wrestling network um, we rarely get to see that in wrestling, let alone life, really. No, it's very true. And and it's also holds a I think a, a significant place because of, you know the strength that she showed in doing that. You know, in Mike my, my interviews with, with Sheik, like we've talked about that moment and she's talked about how scared she was to do it because, you know, Yes, like there are all of these like Hood Slam fans that come to the shows week after week um, that, you know, have built up this very, very strong and supportive community. Right. But you still don't know if whenever you come out, if acceptance will be given back. Um, and I mean, that's a very, you know, that's a very real feeling that that queer people have like even the people that you hold closest and 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 feel the most supported by sometimes can just turn their back on you you know um i mean she has expressed that you know she thought she might have to quit pro wrestling after coming out um before before she came out that she thought this because she just didn't know what the response is going to be and if the level of acceptance was going to be there for her and, and to feel that the cheaters from that audience whenever she announced that um like like i i watch that video at least once a year um or if i'm feeling super down <laughs> because it is a very uplifting um piece of media to watch but it just it has the ability to feel to fill you with strength in the same way that you know, the dark sheik always had in in a way throughout the presence of the character in Hood Slam. But this was this was not Sheik doing that. This was this was Sam that was doing that. And you know, it couldn't have. I don't think it could have turned out any better for for her and for all the people that were there and the people that have seen it in the years since. Yeah, for sure. She said, I thought that I would have to stop wrestling for a while. That was my big fear, that people wouldn't accept me. And it's been quite the opposite. It's been amazing. While I didn't come out until March 2019, I've been dressing as a woman since 2014. Not just at shows. There were photos of me on social media where I'd be at some party or at the arcade or wherever it might be. While I wasn't out, I always wondered how many people just knew already without me having said it. And in an interview with Brian... She said, it's one thing to be myself at a show surrounded by people cheering me. It's another thing to be myself and go to the supermarket, putting myself in a vulnerable place. I don't want to tell anyone how to live their journey because it's all valid and none of it is to be judged. But for me, I want to be fearless. I don't want to be afraid to be myself. 
At first, she's self-conscious of her deep voice, but after vanity searching after her matches, she finds other trans women praising her for the representation. It changes her outlook on that as well. So instead of taking time off that she fears that she's going to have to, she's back in the ring two weeks later. Speaking of Fearless, June 2019 is Hood Slam Fearless. The first Fearless is a very LGBTQ heavy show featuring wrestlers like Effie, Edith Surreal, Vipress, and others. And we end 2019 with 2019 being the biggest year yet for Hood Slam. They've done over 50 live events, twice as many as the year before. Sheik's at a personal high. Hood Slam is doing amazing, just getting bigger and stronger and greater. 2019 is so good. 2020 is going to be even better, right? 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 Right. Uh, yeah. I got I got something to tell y'all. <laughs> uh -oh. March 13th, 2020 is the final Hood Slam show before COVID-19 shuts down the world. And it's a bummer because that April was supposed to be the collective. WrestleMania 36 weekend, it would have featured the very first Effie's Big Gay Brunch. Sheik was going to wrestle on it. And instead, it's canceled. Everything's canceled. Even bigger, specific to Hood Slam, like April was going to be the 10 year anniversary of Hood Slam, or the 10 year birthday of Hood Slam, rather. That's the thing. We It's not that long ago that like we still remember. We were doing this podcast when all this happened, and we remember. At the time, people were thinking, like, what's this going to be, like a month? Maybe a month or two? Like, it, it, there's no way this lockdown, pandemic, like, shutdown, social distancing thing is going to be longer than a couple of months. And it was a lot longer, folks. <laughs> Hood Slam's 10-year anniversary is approaching. The plan was for Sheik to wrestle Juice Lee again, her very first opponent in the very first Hood Slam match back in April 2010. It was an attempt to close the circle. And in fact, the plan was that tentatively it was going to be Sheik's final Hood Slam match ever. Just completing the storyline of Dark Sheik and Sheik Kanabadi and all of that in Hood Slam. But instead, April comes and goes. There are no shows. There's no Hood Slam. There's no celebration. May comes, June, July, August. Nothing. No wrestling. By September of 2020, it's been six months that Sheik has been without wrestling, without her lifeblood, and things are bleak. Sometimes the time off is relief, like you, it's a chance to rest physically, mentally, but it's a void. It's such a part of her life, especially. So one day she goes to the Stoner U Dojo where they keep the Hood Slam ring, and she's rolling around by herself for in a while in the ring, and she places her hands on the mat. She remembers her first show, her first bump, everything that wrestling has ever given to her. And she recognizes this holiness that is around her. And in that moment, the Church of Wrestling is born. A beautiful thing. The Church of Wrestling is a legit um, yeah. religion <laughs> that, that Dark Sheik uh, registered and set up. Because like to her, like her church is the wrestling. Her church is pro wrestling. You know, it's not it's it's not a, a joke thing to, to Sheik, right? Like you hear the name Church of Pro Wrestling, it can be very easy to kind of like scoff and, and laugh it off, but to Sheik it is a deeply personal uh, personally held thing. 
for her. And in action, the Church of Wrestling kind of acted as a uh, a place to um, for you know wrestling people to like be welcome to congregate, not like physically, but you know just in terms of like uh, people who similarly um, felt um, compelled or um, drawn to pro wrestling beyond just you know the entertainment factor to it right um as well as the, there was there were plans i don't know if this is still the case right now but um you know there was potentially a, a fund that was going to be set up or was set up at some point to kind of help um pro wrestlers that were in financial need um you know either during the pandemic or once wrestling started back up and that sort of thing uh, and it also led to um a, a, a small collection of specific Church of Wrestling shows that have, uh, if you asked our chic, they might be lost to time in some way. But I do know that there are a couple that pop up on YouTube here or there as a means of, you know, she wanting to, you know, at least get back to doing something pro wrestling wise in that way. Uh, you know, just kind of a different thing that in terms of pro wrestling presentation. That, that she wanted to do. Yeah, I, I think one of the really key things about this is like all the paperwork is that like it's all it's all above board. None of it is like it, it's not a club. It's not a club that calls itself a church. It's not a it's not a, like a social gathering. It's not like a wrestler support group or, or just a fan group or people or combination of, of that. And it's it's a like a legitimately um, recognized, legalized um a religious institution that uh, celebrates openly the way that wrestling can connect um, communities, connect individuals to um, bring something so positive, uh, such a positive force into people's lives from, from the performers of the ring to the people around it. Um, and it's something that like, you know, she thinks about and talks about in a very, um, a very metaphysical way. Um, and it's really, it, it's, it sounds so kind of, it still sounds so kind of like absurd in that way because, um, you know, something like this only seems a little bit more over the top when it's played as, as straightforward as it's being, as it's, as it is. Like it, it's absolutely everything that Sheik has said it is. You go to the website, you read through it. It's all like 100% sincere. But then you think about, especially the wrestlers, especially the LGBTQ wrestlers who, have benefited from Sheik's impact and um, Sheik's generation of LGBTQ plus uh, wrestlers and promoters and people who had any kind of creative control or creative say in wrestling, um, that generation before the current generation, the generation who who had to work through bigoted crowds and, and the generation now that has, you know, a slightly warmer reception and slightly more opportunities and, and more places to be at home. So it makes all the sense in the world that, uh, she could be cognizant of this process and and this progress and understand that wrestling in of itself, it, it could be a practice of like spiritual wholeness. And that's what the Church of Wrestling really recognizes. Yeah. And it speaks to Sheik's experience with pro wrestling as well. Like One of the things that's really stuck with me, another thing that's really stuck with me in conversations with Sheik is like Sheik describes herself as being born a wrestler. Like she is felt like maybe not like you know a connection in terms of like watching the stuff since the day she was born 
but the the spirit of it and her connection to it and all of these various like tendrils of inspirational acts that that have kind of bore out from her time in pro wrestling they were all there day one with her and it, it only makes sense that she would be a person that would put that connectivity into action in the way that she has with establishing the church of pro wrestling she says a sheik is not a prophet or a deity there's someone that's living on the right path they're showing you the way it can be done the way it should be done even a source of emulation october 10th 2020 after six months of delays and covid and shutdowns and lockdowns it finally happens it is effie's big gay brunch it is dark chic versus still life with apricots and pears it's chic's first match for gcw it's her first match in seven months it's potentially the first time two trans women have ever wrestled each other and it's just a special occasion all around she told em and megan when she was on our special 420 episode of grid and glitter that she saved the gear afterwards and vowed not to wear it again until another occasion just as special came up it's an, it's an amazing moment honestly this was probably my introduction to dark chic because i don't follow the west coast scene very closely and at this point in october 2020 she had not wrestled very much outside of hood slam yeah, I, I believe that she had maybe made some appearances with Bizarro Lucha previous to this. Um, and then, of course, like you talked about the, the shows that they ran in, in the Northwest, you know, where they were partnered with other promotions up here and that sort of thing. But, but yeah, like, I, I feel like this match in particular was a lot of people's first time uh, really getting to see chic and understanding you know what people have been raving about with her for the for the last 10 years on the west coast you know uh like one of the key things that that i latched on to back whenever the the big gay brunch was supposed to run in tampa was you know chic was rolling in there uh with like Almost what felt like a chip on her shoulder, like that whole West Coast, the West Coast has something to say uh, aspect of that in terms of like, you know, how people hadn't been paying attention to what was going on on the, on the West Coast. Um, they hadn't necessarily been paying as close attention to what was being built in, in, in Oakland with Hood Slam, and they hadn't been paying as attention to, to Dark Sheik and – Whenever she entered that ring with uh, with Still Life or Edith now, um, like she put everybody on point to understand why she was talking that leading into it, and to understand that you know there's more to independent pro wrestling than just the Northeast, East Coast, and Midwest. To date, it's still easily one of my favorite matches from either of them. Absolutely, I believe that. That year when we did our honors list, that was and like super high up. One of our our favorites, our listeners' favorites. Um, I just I really feel like you are seeing 
you are seeing two generations. It, it, it almost seems unfair because it, it, it it's weird to, to compare it like that, but you're seeing two generations of trans wrestlers um, really showcase everything that is special about their particular forms of wrestling, where they come from, what forms their wrestling. Um, you're seeing you're seeing this feedback loop really because you're seeing someone who like clearly got inspiration from a, a pseudo mentor in Dark Sheik. You're seeing Still Life slash Edith um, really like in the like beginning of her flourishing period in pro wrestling. And it's just something that's really, really powerful. So even beyond simply the like dynamics here of like a, a great wrestling match, you're seeing a story that is so much more than simply the, the like, you know, heel versus face, the, the simple story that we structure that we get repeated over and over again in wrestling. We are seeing, I, I'll put it this way. Evie has had a fair amount of big gate brunches at this point, and there are some very, very impactful moments and matches throughout the run of all the big gate brunches. But nothing has felt quite like this since this match happened. There's, there hasn't been a match or a moment like this in any of the other big gate brunches that felt so organically realized and so, so organically impactful. It's just it's it's just a it's a really great match to watch. It's also just a really fun match. It's really interesting to see how their styles um, their styles parallel, their styles overlap, their styles contrast in certain directions. Um, and Edith makes a great foil for Sheik. So, uh, it, yeah, just highly highly recommend. Like I said, this was her first match for GCW, and it really sets off a, a whole chain of events that has completely like changed Sheik's presentation in the world of wrestling as well. She spends spring of 2021 mostly wrestling for GCW because also Hoodslam hasn't returned yet. Indie wrestling is back post-pandemic, things are happening, but Hoodslam is still hibernating. And in the spring of 2021, summer of 2021, Sheik is in just like LGBTQ icon mode. She's wrestling Devon Monroe, AC Mack, Effie, Trisha Dora, MV Young. She wrestles another trans woman when she takes on Jamie Senegal in North Carolina. June 2021, she announces she's running her first show since the pandemic began. It's a Pride event in Las Vegas where she's moved during the pandemic, and it's called Fearless. We had a Hood Slam Fearless. This is Dark Sheik Presents Fearless. She stresses it's not a Hood Slam show. It was it was a really fun show that I think people should go back and revisit, especially for um, three matches in particular stand out to me. You had MV Young versus Dark Sheik on that show, which was really fun. Um, and then you had Effie versus Funny Bone, which is just – you know them. You know what they'll do to each other. <laughs> and then the main event with Tommy Purr and Brittany Wonder in a good housekeeping match, which – felt like it that match in particular felt like a little bit of that that um hood slam taste was in there a little bit just a tiny bit um but yeah that that was a a really fun show so by the fall of 2021 it feels like chic is finally getting her flowers 20 years into her career january 2022 it's the royal rumble what the hell does that have to do with our story well one of the surprise entrants in the Women's Rumble is WWE Hall of Famer Lita, and in order to get in shape and just like get a, get a warmed up for her first match in two years, 
Lita trains at the Stoner U Dojo with Dark Sheik, Anton Voorhees, and the Stoner Brothers. <laughs> I could not find, though, um, how, why Lita got involved with like Stoner U and Sheik and Hood Slam and all that. I am not 100% either, although I will say, like, you know, knowing Lita's interests outside of wrestling, I could see Hood Slam being on her radar. You know, we're talking like she she toured with a band called the Lucha Gores for a while. <laughs> you know, like she's into the Hood Slam type scene <laughs> in a way. So that wouldn't surprise me at all. Another fun aspect of this though as well was i don't know if was it for the royal rumble or was it for Lita's next appearance where they showed the training it was because this was a surprise entrance in the royal rumble um so the next time that Lita wrestled they had like the training the videos of her training right and you can clearly see dark sheik in the background so dark sheik's been on wwe television um <laughs> in a way <laughs> sheik you made it you made it to the, the big guys February 2022 for Prestige, Sheik teams with MV Young as Pax Americana. They take on the team of Bussy. Interestingly enough, this is Sheik's highest rated match on Cage Match. I don't know if I would put it as her highest rated match, but I'm also not the typical Cage Match fan. But I will say... Better than the Joker and Harley Quinn? Come on, what are these people smoking? I mean... Come on. Like, have you seen Dark Sheik versus, again, Manny Favorino from the Battle Royal of Supremacy 2018? Come on. But um, that being said, like, I was live at this show for this match here you at were? the Roseland in Portland. Yeah, I was at this show. And um, I cannot tell you how large of a pop all four of them got. Um coming out for that match and then just the destruction that unfolded like i effie i know that we're talking about dark sheet for just for a minute effie you gotta stop taking the door shots straight to the head unprotected so many of those happened in that match i don't know how he's alive i told him this to his face and he just laughed at me <laughs> finally march 4th 2022 hood slam returns for the first time in almost two years. We get Sheik versus Juice Lee. We get Sheik picking up the win for the first time. Well, for the first time over this Juice Lee. It should be Pope Juice Lee in the other dimension, but this is the first time over this Juice Lee in our dimension. She closes the circle. It will not be Sheik's last Hood Slam match. It will not be the last Hood Slam show. In fact, by May, they're back running monthly shows at the New Metro Opera House. Our Next match on the playlist, June 2022, it's Dark Sheik with Poro Del Mar versus El Chupacabra for the Golden Gig Championship. This one takes place outside of the New Metro Opera House. Sheik and Chupacabra have been wrestling each other since 2007. Before her stem even existed, they've been wrestling each other. And this one is... So yeah, that's why I wanted to include this one for the playlist. Is A, they've been wrestling each other for a long, long time through many incarnations of both of them. B, this is a taste of modern Hood Slam, post-pandemic contemporary Hood Slam. Yes. <laughs> so this, this match um, is so much fun, not just because of the wrestling in it, but this is also where 
dark sheet kind of pulls back the curtain, so to speak. It's even though it's still like in character, and reveals herself as the writer of Hood Slam, the animator, right? And she uses this newfound ability to continue to rewrite the match. She loses to Chupacabra and then goes back to her binder and writes <laughs> basically restarts the match. Um, and it makes it a two out of three fall. If I'm not mistaken, it makes it two out of three falls. And then Chupacabra beats her again. And so she goes back to her binder and scribbles it down in there. And then it's announced that the match is now restarting as a notice qualification match. And then Dark Sheik just straight up hits Chupacabra with a brick and pins him in the ring <laughs> to win the golden gig. Um, it's, it is the right mix of like the athleticism that you expect from pro wrestling. The goofiness and the uniqueness of Hood Slam. And like you said, Harley, it really does kind of represent what we are seeing now with Hood Slam. Because, you know, if you watch a, a Hood Slam show since since then, like you still get all of like that um, off the wall thought process in terms of story and character and stuff that Hood Slam gave you. But you also get kind of intermixing with the the top, like top names of the independent scene, and and you get um, like a lot of interesting infusion between those those two ideas that gives you matches like Kenny K versus Speedball Mike Bailey on a Hood Slam show, where I would have never thought of Speedball Mike Bailey being on a Hood Slam show six seven years ago. <laughs> Right. Like it's just it's, it's an interesting evolution of what Hoodslam presents without losing the core. Actually, better yet, imp- like improving on the core in a lot of ways of what Hoodslam was. I mean, they introduced a championship that's just a, a ship in a bottle and it's called the championship. <laughs> and if you win it, you have to be a pirate. That's post pandemic Hoodslam. <laughs> Like I know Hood Slam is not gonna be everybody's wrestling promotion of, the, of choice. Like I tend to think of Hood Slam outside of just pure wrestling promotion. Um you have to think of it as something beyond that and adjacent to that, uh it, attached to wrestling, but not necessarily like there's a reason I think that there's a bigger reason than just a, than um, just like the cool factor or not wanting to alienate people to leave out wrestling when they first were promoting Hood Slam that kind of carries into its ethos today where you're going to see a lot of wrestling. You're going to see really great wrestlers now in those rings. You're going to see really good wrestling in those rings. But you don't ever have to be a wrestling fan to get into any number of things that happen at a Hood Slam show. That has been the mindset from the beginning. It's the mindset now. It's just that the caliber of talent and the caliber of matches you're seeing may actually persuade you to watch more wrestling. Yeah, and those people embrace the the hood slamness of hood slam in a way that is really interesting as well. I love watching Veda and Brosif Joe Brody on commentary together because they are just two completely different presentations of pro wrestling that mesh so well together because of the the, the valleys between them in that way. 
June 2022, Sheik defeats Darius Carter to capture the Paris is Bumping Grand Prize, but loses it to Candy Lee in the main event, a three-way also involving Edith Surreal. The first all-trans femme main event in pro wrestling history. That's right. Also on that night, she's inducted into Paris Honors, uh, the de facto LGBTQ pro wrestling hall of fame set up by Billy Dixon. So, like, it was just a all-around amazing night for her. Meanwhile, in Hood Slam, Sheik and Antoine Voorhees have formed an alliance with Vipress in a quest to usher in a new golden age of Hood Slam. But then she loses the golden gig to Pong in a three-way match, also involving El Chupacabra. (laughs) (laughs) August, she teams with Bussy for the first time. October, I believe, she wrestles in Canada for the first time ever. Edmonton, Alberta versus Ava Lawless. Oh. January 2023, Dark Sheik, Effie, and Alley Catch officially form Thrussy. First time ever. March 2023, four nights after wrestling on Monday Night Raw, Lita makes a return to Hood Slam. She gets a brief promo, and she even says, fuck the fans, before passing the mic to Sheik. Yes. Yes. I just It makes me so happy to have Lita in any way involved with Hood Slam. This, I just love seeing her, like, gigging right, like, along with Dark Sheik. It's just so good. Yeah. It's just great. It makes me, it just, it feels, again, it's just like spiritually right. Our final match on the playlist, April 2023, GCW Seneth Crime. It is Thrussy taking on Cole Radrick and Brat Pack in trios action. Um, I actually, I missed this one on the weekend because GCW sometimes does these things where, like, they have, like, two big shows in a row and it's right after a bunch of other big shows. And, like, I, so I completely lost track of this one, aside from the fact that I remember seeing the ads for it or seeing, like, you know, permission for it pop up and... You know, having it be these like three, you know, standard bearers of GCW and independent wrestling as a whole and um, versus our like, you know, a little guys, our, our next gen and being excited to see it. So getting to watch it for this um, for this particular segment made me really happy because you get to see uh, Dark Sheik, you know, kick a whole lot of ass and you get to see a ton of crazy shots. And um, there's you know, ultimately one of my favorite moments of this match is when um, the, I forget if it was, I'm sorry, I get these like GCW boys mixed up so often. So apologies if I'm saying it's the wrong person, but Billy and I believe it was Cole. Oh, are you talking about the double split? Yes. The double Johnny Cage spot? That was uh, Billy and, uh, and Brogan Finley. That was Billy and Brogan. Okay. I, I have like a weird kind of male bl- like facial blindness when it comes to some of these guys in DCW. I apologize to them. They um, are all very talented, but unfortunately they kind of blend in to one another sometimes. Um, so Brogan and um, Billy are going to go after Sheik after laying out Effie and Allie. And Sheik, uh, of course, does her like gorgeous like split down to the to the mat, um, giving level punches to the crotches of both her opponents. Um, but this doesn't work quite as effectively on Billy Starks. And Billy has a great way of no-selling it. And it's um, it's just a really, it leads into a really fun little sequence between her and Sheik. It's fun to see Billy work with Sheik. 
Um, yeah, just a lot of fun. A lot, a, a great, that was a, a a really great Rossi match to showcase because you get a lot of wrestling, you get the fun Rossiness of it all, um, but it uh, it doesn't get derailed by quite as many shenanigans as you might see in another another Rossi match. Yeah, I really like the the mix of like you know I don't I hesitate to use the word generations because there's not really enough years between like you know the the people on the various teams to really constitute like a difference in generation per se, but you get to see like the, this mix of like two different generations that are that are going at each other and you know um, bringing their own like processes and their own uh, uh, approaches to pro wrestling um, to that matchup and, and to see them mix up their styles and um, really showcase some of the young and up and coming names like Brogan, like Billy and and Cole to an extent, you know, Cole, he's been a champion in, in GCW prior to this match, but, and is beloved by the GCW audience. But at the same time, like he hasn't been in GCW as long as Effie and Allie have. You know, hasn't necessarily even been as frequent in GCW as Darshik has, you know, over the years. So, like, seeing, like, this, like, like the established GCW versus the upcoming GCW was a really, really f- fun aspect of this to watch. And also, like, I will say it was really fun to, to see another uh, thrusty match so close to what we saw at the Big Gay Brunch six prior to this like earlier in the month where you saw thrussy in that war gaze match as it was called and and really <laughs> solidify that partnership in a way and, and add billy dixon into the mix at least for one night <laughs> may 2023 chic competes in the rainbow rumble at big gay brunch uk which i believe was her first time ever in wrestling in england I, I'm with you on that. I believe that is her first time. Uh, there might be something that uh, that I've overlooked, but I went back and looked at looked through this um, prior to the show, and, and I think you're right, spot on there, Harley. June second, twenty twenty three, Hood Slam, the new Hood Slam. Lita makes another surprise appearance. This time, getting physical, she kicks Jack Cartwheel between the legs, helping Sheik pick up a win. After the match, it seems like there might be something, some sort of alliance between Sheik, Lita, and Vipress, but then also it seems like there's problems brewing between Sheik and Vipress. And so that's something to watch going forward, because, hey, we're up to the present. Hood Slam Sunny Days was June 23rd. If you're listening to this podcast, it already happened. But as we record this, it has not happened yet. July 7th, they are back on fight for Hood Slam American Scream. That's it. We're up to the present day. 2023 will mark 22 years of Dark Sheik as a wrestler. In an interview with our illustrious guest this week, Brian, Sheik said, My motivations now are a little different. Before, I wanted to bring these people to the West Coast that had never wrestled in the Bay Area. Now, I want to hang out with my friends again. I didn't know everybody that well back then. There's a bunch of us now, and it's growing. There's so much love and respect between this community. I haven't had that before. To actually have a community that embraces me, that I can give back to in some small way through these events, it's wonderful. And in my final quote from an interview with Daily DDT, she says, after 10 years of Hood Slam, 
and showing people that these alternative shows actually have merit. And now they're all over the world. That's beautiful. People are enjoying wrestling, but now also this new way to appreciate it. Not just to have fun with it, but to be grateful to what we've gotten from it and through it. It's wild. I didn't mean to do that, but it turns out I am the Sheik. True words. Rarely been spoken. There. Like, it's amazing to see, like, the community that Sheik built through Hood Slam. You know, this, this little thing that, you know, started in a rundown, like, like quote-unquote warehouse um, that, you know, was cramped and covered in graffiti and honestly looked pretty rad personally. But, like, to start from there and to build this into what it is now and to step out of that in the last few years and, you know, be met with even more community that believes in her, that thrives off of her and finds inspiration through her. Like it's, it speaks to what she built in Oakland. It speaks to like she and, and all of the, the people with Hood Slam have built in Oakland and just the way that taking your own viewpoint on your art really not pay off because you know of the the, con- the financial connotation that comes with that even though like yes hood slam led her led her to a, a very good path in that way but more so that it it built something completely new and fresh when pro wrestling needed it the most and has gone on to shape the independent scene as a whole beyond just the United States. And that is something that very, very few people in pro wrestling can say is part of their legacy. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Grit and Glitter. Thank you, Brian, for joining us. Go rate, review, and subscribe to LGBT in the Ring, the one of the best wrestling podcasts out there behind Grit and Glitter. <laughs> How many episodes are you up to now, Brian? Uh, we are, let's see, as of this recording, uh, episode 203 will be out. Uh, by the time that y'all have listened to this. So we're, we're there. I know y'all are right on the precipice of 200 as well, which uh, congratulations, first off. It's, it's a monumental task to, to get to that point with anything, much less a podcast. Um, and it's, I've, I, just to take a moment, like I've thoroughly enjoyed all of the work that y'all have done as well. Y'all have done enough talking up me for a moment. I'm going to talk y'all up for a second. Um, because, the topics that y'all have covered, the people that y'all have interviewed on your show as well, like it, it speaks to the continued widening of pro wrestling in a way. To have a show that talks about pro wrestling specific to women and people of marginalized genders and to get to 200 episodes focusing on that specifically, that speaks to you know 
one, the audience that's there that wants it. And two, it speaks to the, the passion that y'all put into this as well. And I'm I'm proud to to call y'all a sibling podcast uh, to LGBT in the ring. Like it it just yeah, that relationship writes itself. Oh, Brian. <laughs> this beautiful community of um it's this beautiful community that's in and around wrestling right now that embraces wrestling for everything it can be and all that it can mean to to people who have been typically left out of that conversation and it's something that you do so wonderfully with your show it's something we try to emulate here it's something that i see emulated in lots of coverage of wrestling now from you know from our wrestling wind down to all to to more you know, to better known podcasts, to podcasts that have like, you know, thousands and thousands of followers and, and huge, you know, streaming um, and platform presences. And I think that when we started working together, and you may have had the same experience when you started LGBTQ in the ring, there was maybe even a little less to talk about than there is now where there seems to be no end of the amount of wrestlers we can talk to, the new promotions we can highlight, the shows that we can feature. And that's really, really exciting because, you know, even thinking back to when I got into pro wrestling a mere like five years ago, there was much less out there visible. And um, and that's why covering something like like she covering something like Hood Slam um, is so important, because before this conversation could be had in so many different ways, the conversation could be had only in a few different ways. And Hood Slam was dominating that conversation for for years and years and years, especially for the independents. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I feel like I speak for me and Harley when I say that I'm privileged to get to do this every week. I'm privileged to get to talk to fine folks like yourself, Brian. Um, and it's just so exciting to have so much to continuously cover every week and to be able to go to 200 episodes, 300 episodes and beyond and never run out of people to talk to or stuff to say about it. It's almost as if if you built the space that it will continue to grow because you have built something that they could be built off of. Right. You know? Oh, oh yeah. Like quote goes, if you build it, they'll get there eventually. Right. That's the old saying. That's the old saying. <laughs> please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Patreon at Greg litter pod. And please, please come back next week for our 200th episode. I went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Em and I were live at enjoy wrestling. Thank you.